It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Yo, man. Boom, Miss Rusty. What's up, everybody? It is Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday morning, and it is show 400. 400. And going since 2013. I've just looked at it this morning, November of 2013. First one with Steve Magnuson uh, in my, I called it the polio parlor, which was a, it was a house off of what used to be Asylum Avenue, which is now Hawthorne Avenue in Portland, Oregon. And there was a kid who had polio and he couldn't go outside. So they created a, a solarium for him. Uh, and it was like an add-on spot. And that was where I had my setup to do my recording for my shows. Uh, and so that's where we've come from. This is where we are today, almost 10 years later with 400 episodes. So thank you for being here on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network with other great shows such as when the gloves come off this is it with lizzie the thinking man's pro wrestling podcast and saved by the ben where i am the co-host of all of them so check those out and this is brought to you by stone reese productions fred ben savage's buck hardcore and comedy hypnosis is great and sockemup.org and today i'm gonna bring up my special guest for my 400th episode special guest I'm going to bring her on right now, right here, right now. And I know I forgot one part of it. I forgot one question I needed to ask beforehand, and I knew it. I knew there was something I was forgetting. But uh, I'll figure that out here soon. But she's here. She's here. Well, maybe not yet. So when she comes on, she comes on. So I'm just going to talk about these 400 episodes until she gets on. So the show started out was me interviewing people who were in the pro wrestling world or the stand-up comedy world, or, or also people who were involved in uh, some YouTube shows or music. That was kind of how it started out at the beginning. And even then I knew I was like, I can't just go and keep it to one, one specific thing. So uh, I had to just figure it out. And I was like, okay, well, this is what my show is going to be. And so the show ended up being exactly what it is. And what it's come to be now is just lots and lots of different um different things let's see she says she gets she got kicked off so i didn't kick her off so uh hopefully she can rejoin here um okay she's trying to rejoin uh if not i don't i don't know what what i should do um but yeah so thank you everyone thank you thank you um see if it doesn't if it doesn't work i'm gonna start over 
jeez. Uh, I can't even type. So it let, looks like let me caca. I'm trying to put no and I want K space K O cacao. Shoot. So I hope, yeah, she shows up. So you guys are getting this, but um, ooh, beautiful. All right. So yeah, hopefully this works. Maybe I can try. Oh, there we go. She's in the waiting room. I think we got it. I think we got it. I got it here. It's saying she's joining. Now looks connecting to audio. This is good. This is good. And there she is. There she is. She made it. Um, we have Martha Glory. I didn't get to ask how to pronounce your, your name. And that's something I usually do. But uh, are we going with Martha Glory or am I missing or something? Or is that good? Oh, I cannot hear you. Not yet. I can pretend I can. Can you hear me? Uh-oh. I am muted. I am not muted. I don't know if I'm muted on your side. It says that I'm record like from the recording side it's saying I'm recording. Hmm. I'm not. So this is what the 400th episode's like. So um I'm not sure. Can you try? Oh, is that now you're muted? You can hear me though now. I there got go. it. There we go. There we go. We got it. So welcome, Martha Glory. Are you go? Do you go by Martha Glory or am I? Is that there more? I didn't ask for what your how to pronounce your last name, and that's something I usually do beforehand, and I forgot. No but problem. It's Martha by, Glory Cartawi. Yep. Okay, I would have guessed that right. Um, all right. All right. I think I would have been okay there. You, I've been doing pretty good with pronunciation of names lately. Normally I'm so-so, hmm, so-so to so-so to pretty good, but um, so yeah, welcome. Welcome here on the 400th episode podcast. And um, so let's see. So that was something I was going to say. I'm going to try not to say anymore was, so uh, let's see, or so. Uh, I got a lot of podcasts under my belt. I should be a little a little better here. But uh, so where where are you here in the world? I'm in North Carolina. Oh, North Carolina. Okay. So you're, you're even in my time zone. So 10 o'clock. So are you, uh, are you an early bird or what's? What's your I, style? I here? am. I am. I um. I usually get up between five and six, and generally because I like to start my day with some good energy, some good intention, some good motivation, and that happens before the rest of the house gets up. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, I found that's that's a nice thing. It's nice being up. I never would have thought when I was, you know, even in my twenties maybe 30s that I would ever be someone that'd be getting up at four or five in the morning to get going but I started doing that a few years ago and it's it's a game changer because by the time everything opens up and you know people are going to work 
I've already done a lot of the day. I've already got a lot of the stuff done and the stuff that would have taken longer because it was when everybody else is out, I can get done in probably half the time. Right. So with less interruptions, with less interruptions. Yeah. Just get a go, go, go. And so ah, that was the other thing I was going to stop saying. And so, um, now I'm going to be in my head all about this today. So then, so you do your intentions in the morning and then what's after the intentions usually uh, on a, on a regular day. So I am a, a very calendar driven person. Everything that is important to me needs to be in my calendar or it's just not going to happen because I'm uh, I have a very full life. And so if it's not in the calendar, it doesn't generally happen. So I check my calendar and I kind of get prepped around um, what's going on for the day with the calendar. We get on the same page and then, and then I start, then I start, you know, like, you know, what's got to be done today. Right. And so is that a calendar on your phone or is that a calendar? It's on my phone and it's synced on my computer so I can look at it both ways. Yeah. Okay. It's because, I mean, it's not one that's on the fridge like we used no, to have definitely. when we were kids. <laughs> no, my mom still keeps one of those, but I do not. I, everything I, has to be backed up for me. I bet my mom still does too. Still has that <laughs> thing on the fridge. And it's, um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, if it's on our phone, we're taking our phones everywhere. So, so, I mean, how much, how much of your business is being on your phone or your computer and do you have a preference for one or the other? So, um, with my coaching business, everything is done online. So, um, you know, everything's done over zoom. Um, so everything's done on the computer. I try not to have to use my phone for that, try to do that on the computer, but I'm also a um, medical massage therapist. So I get the hands-on care um, with my clients with that. So it does not everything has to be done on Zoom for, for me. So that that it's a good balance. It gives your chance, uh, it gives your eyes a chance to rest. Yes. Uh, I actually had a, another thing. Uh, it's called FLUX that you can go and you type that into your search engine and it gives you a dark mode of your computer um, so you don't have as much of the blue light where you can get glasses that you know shield out the blue light that makes your eyes extra tired if you go into that it does it automatically for everything of yours and um yeah, I don't know. They're not paying me either. Them or Opus Pro not paying me, but I like talking about them because they are, they're helpful. And if we're having so much time just looking at these things. And so I, when you're going and switching from coaching mode to massage mode or vice versa, is there some sort of switch and what do you have to do? Do you have to kind of change gears or is it sort of an automatic process or is it, you know, um, uh, seamless? Yeah. So Rusty, that's actually an interesting question. Nobody's really asked me how I've married the two careers. Right. Um, right. which is, which is basically what it, what it is. I've been a massage therapist for 
16 years and it's one of my greatest passions and privileges is to be able to help um, you know my clients bodies feel better but I really felt like it was um, and I've always felt like it was a gift to be able to share that right because not every massage therapist has the same techniques not every massage therapist um, you know is, is able to share in the same way. So I've always felt very gifted and very blessed to be able to share massage in the way that I have to be able to help so many people. But it's also hard on my body, right? I've had elbow surgery, hand surgery, shoulder wow. surgery, all because of the work that I do as a therapist. And so it was time for me to kind of find something that I had equal passion and equal um, giftings in and that's how I um, kind of got on the road to coaching. And that's, um, so now I feel like when I get to do both of them kind of part-time, you know, to make a full-time career, I feel very blessed and, and it's seamless to be able to stand in both of your giftings and really feel like this is what you're created to do. So it's really cool. Yeah. Was it difficult to get to a point that you knew you could only do half uh, or, you know, a portion of as much uh, massaging as you did before? Or was there a time when you didn't quite, I mean, what was the process to get you from, shoot, I don't think I should do this as much anymore. Um, I had a similar thing happen and get to, I should be coaching. What, what was kind of that process? Well, it's, it's been kind of um, an organic a kind of transfer or an organic kind of journey as I have grown um, and self-developed and found my healing journey from some uh, major traumas of my earlier um, life, I have slowly kind of felt the calling for um, beginning to stand in my truth, in my authenticity and be able to help other people. And that's where coaching came in because I had uh, along my healing journey, I had a really awesome life coach that really helped me make some monumental changes in my life in order to reclaim who I was, who I was meant to be and where I was going. And so that kind of started this organic desire inside of me to be like, how do I take my story? How do I take my experience and my healing and turn it into something positive to be able to help other people? And so as I've, you know, learned the tools and then went through the certification, um, you know, I, I've realized that I want to move more in, in that direction and get away from the hands-on, but I, I always want to keep some hands-on because it's such a, it's such a gifting for me. Yep. That's kind of where I feel I, I can't fully leave that physical part behind and, you know, do what I still can, but yeah, things, things move, we have to pivot. And what was it that your, um, the person working with you beforehand, what was it about them that they worked with you on that really got you to think that I should do this? So at that time, because this was like eight or nine years ago now, but at that time, it was more, he just helped me to find my voice right? He helped me to reconnect with who I was and who, um, and build my self-confidence and build my, just my, um, 
my ability to stand in my own skin and not be scared of the things that I had been through, right? Like there's, it's been a very healing journey. So I was not ready to own my giftings then, or to be able to say, I'll ever do this at that time, you know, as, as, but it's been, as I learned those tools and I kept healing and I kept doing self-development and self-awareness and um, self-care, realizing that I had the passion now as I had healed, you know, to use that to help other people. So it's been, it's been a journey, but I wasn't ready for it back when I learned, learned those initial gifts or those initial tools from my first life coach. So, so with, with your first life coach then, so were you telling, did the, uh, the events that you had in the past did that get brought up uh, during one of your sessions and then he wanted to dive more into it and then that became you realized it was a bigger can of worms than you thought and that it was something that was yeah at you and that you didn't realize it was impacting as much as it was so I had been, before I met my coach, like I had been on a, a trauma recovery journey for several years. And I had tried many different modalities from talk therapy to trauma recovery therapy, EMDR, to cranial sacral therapy. I, I had tried so many different modalities and each one of them helped me in a specific and, and um, you know, productive way but I was still needing the next level, right? I refer to kind of the, my recovery journey as peeling back an onion. It was like every modality that I tried allowed me to get clarity in a certain area around you know, my past and around the trauma that I was carrying around. So by the time I made it to a life coach, I had kind of um, told and retold and lived and relived the emotion of the trauma and, you know, um, and now I was ready to learn tools to move forward. And that's what the life coach really helped me learn how to do was move forward, not regurgitate and relive, but to have, have the tools to move forward. Um, now that, you know, that I had done so many other different therapies. Um, and so how do you feel you are with that now? Like, as far as impact of if if something comes up that reminds you of it is it still I mean you're you're talking about which I know is a a huge thing and making it uh less less powerful to you know not against you but um less powerful in when as you experience it is right. yeah so um, you know, we haven't specified what the trauma is, but the, the trauma that I experienced was I grew up in a religious cult and I was born into it. It was very um, abusive on every level, physically, emotionally, spiritually, verbally, sexually, all of it. And I experienced that in the first 25 years of my life. And by the time I escaped at age 25, I was a shell of a person. I had no confidence. I had no self-awareness. I had no self-care. I didn't like who I saw in the mirror. Um, I was just a shell of a human because I had, I, I was just, I didn't know who I was. I didn't know who I wanted to be. And so this, um, 
this journey of the last 19 years, because now I've been out 19 years, has been to re-identify and reconnect um, with who I am and who I'm meant to be outside of those traumas, right? And when you ask me, like, how does that feel today? How it feels today is that those things don't define me. Those things are part of my story, are part of my testimony, but they do not define me any longer. Like I don't have the emotional connection to them to make me break down when I talk about it because I've done the work and I've done the healing that it requires in order to stand in my skin and say, no, that's not, that didn't break me. That didn't, you know, that didn't um, destroy me. Like I'm stronger than that. And I have regrouped and now I'm making the best of it by using my voice to help other people. So. And so, I mean, okay. So you were 25. So were you married in there as well? No, I was not. So, and then did you, was schooling through there? Was it every, you know, like you were there all the time? So um, from 18 to 25, I was in the compound. Before that, I lived with my parents and I was in public school because um, most of the uh, families, we owned our own homes and we had our own jobs and things like that. But, But from 18 to 25, I actually lived in the compound with the leader because I was chosen to do so. So that was a a completely different experience than the majority of the experiences for the kids my age, because there wasn't a lot of of kids there, but there were some. Um, And that was kind of where the bulk of the abuse for me happened was between those ages. So were you the only person that was chosen to be there with him? No, there were there were other selected kids there at the same time or young adults. There was probably um, another seven at the, there at the time that I was there. Yeah. So it's and then how long I mean, were they staying there for life then afterwards with him or? It all depends. You know, others escaped as well at different times or some of them are still there now today. So. Um, it all just depends on, you know, their stories and, and, and the things that they have, have um, dealt with and the things that they have decided to do or not to do, right? There was other kids that, that escaped like I did, and then there's others that are still there. Are you in touch with any of them? We're not allowed to be, no. Like, once you leave, you're excommunicated. You're not allowed to speak to people from the inside. Sort of like uh, there's there's a... Yeah, I know some other types of things, places like that, that are uh, in places I used to live um, where, yeah, that's, you can't, can't really do that. And so have you talked to anybody else that has escaped? Yes, I um, have. Uh, I've talked to several people that have left. Um, there's a whole there's a whole bunch of us that have left that specific group over the last 30 some years. And so I've connected and reconnected with, with many of them. Um, and unfortunately, our group is not a exception or it's not, uh, you know, like this is way more prominent than I think we, we understand as a society, these cults. I mean, there's over 5,000 just in the United States alone. 
And what qualifies as a cult, of course, is, is there's certain things that are conducive to being a cult leader, whether that's brainwashing, manipulation, isolation, um, you know, sociopathic, you know, tendencies. There's all of these control, of course, and fear ridden. So there's all of these qualifiers, you know, that are, um, you know, what make a cult leader. And there's a lot of people out doing, you know, really bad things to to innocent people. So my my group was not an exception. So where do you? This is uh, not not the best question. Uh, I mean, where do you see the cutoff between what a cult is and what a religion is and is it is it society accepting it as enough of being you know like is a religion not a huge cult that's widely accepted by everybody or is do you see it differently or how do you experience that so i see um i see things in 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 a more broad sense right so there it could be argued that there are certain, you know, mainstream churches that fall into cultish behaviors, right? Like if, if you are controlled, if any a, a group of people are controlled by fear or controlled by, um, you know, manipulation or isolation, that, that feels cultish, right? But if, if you are, um, you know, a church that, that chooses, like the church that I have um, gone to for many years is a non-denominational Christian church. And, you know, like they prescribe to, you know, helping people and building lives. And, and it's all about love. And it's about, you know, how Jesus and God have, have you know, that was, the, that was the, the, the kind of foundational core of, you know, of their, their, uh, their sermon or their, their, response right and right. so there's a thin line right there's a thin line between cultish behaviors and religion um but you know it's it's a mainstream yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean yeah I, I was living in salt lake city before i moved here and so i saw a bunch of that and talked to a number of people who had been excommunicated um even one that was part of one of the main families of that religion. And that was, that was an experience. And I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just, just that, I mean, is a uh, you know, going pitting yourself. I mean, so your family was in there. So are you not talking with your family? So the majority of my family is out. I have one sister that's still there, but the rest of my family has has gotten out at different um, times over the last. I was actually one of the last to leave because I actually I was the only one that lived in the compound. But yeah, that for uh, the the majority of us are out. Thank God. So what does escaping look like for you? What was that? I mean, or was it you know leaving or escaping or what? So within our group, leaving just meant like you could separate yourself from the group like my parents did and just say, tell the leader, we're done. Don't contact us. We're not coming back. Um, you know, you could leave right on your own free will. For me, I lived in the compound. I had zero free will. My every move was monitored. I, you know, like 
I didn't have free will to just walk out of the gate and leave. So when I say that I escaped, I had to, um, it was very orchestrated by a, a universal divine force that allowed me to get out that the night of December 27th of 2004. A huge snowstorm came. I was able to get by the guards and the gates and the so, you know, and the story in itself of my escaped was, um, is, is still one of the things that will bring me to tears because God brought in somebody, a guardian angel that really, um, I, I couldn't have escaped without him. He uh, was an older gentleman. I called him Papa and he um, showed up in such a way that I had never experienced love of, uh, you know, he, he looked at me like a grandchild or his own child. And he really, when I became honest to him about what I was experiencing within the cult, he was going to do anything and everything he could to get me out of that and allow me to start a new life. And when it came to that, and when it came to me planning my escape, he was instrumental in and giving me money and giving me a car and giving me hope and sharing God with me. Like he was just instrumental in my escape. And so, you know, every time I tell this story, I have to think of Papa. Where did Papa come from? So Papa was a um, patron from the town that I worked in. So I worked for one of the cult businesses and he would visit my shop because we made homemade fudge and so he would come in and buy fudge and then he just befriended me and I had never had an extended family like grandparents or aunts and uncles because we were isolated from our extended families because of the cult and so he was like he just took to me and I took to him because I had never had that kind of love of somebody that wasn't related to me you know like so it was just, yeah, it was a, a it was a four-year friendship of him just coming into my shop um, that I worked for for the cult. And we just, we grew this beautiful friendship. And so then, so it was four years before you escaped. Yes. And of working he, at that place. Yes. Is he still around or is he? Papa has passed on. So um, I was, he did, um, he did get to see me get out of the cult. He did get to see me start my life over. He did come to my first wedding. Um, well, my only wedding, but he did, he did make it to that. And we did get to share several years before um, of him just seeing me outside of the cult and starting over before he passed on, but he has passed on now. Um, so, So when you left, I mean, was there any police contact or anything? Has there been any investigation into this since then with anybody who's left said, hey, you should be checking these people out. They're doing some you know, not not OK stuff or is it? So there's been there's been a lot of um there's a lot of, of attention that's been brought. Unfortunately, by the time that, um, and, and I'm only speaking for myself, even though there's a lot of people that have, have shared their stories as well from my cult, but uh, for me, it took me years to be able to have the, um, the cojones or just the, you know, to not be in fear and to be able to speak freely and openly about what I had experienced within the cult. And by the time that I was 
um, able to speak about it, my statute of limitations had run out. So from the state that the cult was in, it's only seven years. So Whoa. by the time I was able and wasn't living in fear or wasn't intimidated to, you know, share my voice, my statute of limitations had run out. But no, the FBI have been involved in, in investigations. The police have been, it, it, it's, it's an ongoing thing on many different levels. And um, unfortunately, none of those have brought him down yet, but, you know, there's still hope. So are you planning on being the next Papa? <laughs> I, uh, I, wow. Yeah, I, um, yes. What would make I, you more proud? That's why, that's why I'm sharing my story. That's why I'm standing in my truth. And that's why I'm um, wanting to uh, share light and hope is because there's somebody else out there that has had experiences like I have, and they don't have anybody. And so I, I just want to tell them, like, I see you, you're not alone, because that was one of the things that was so hard for me when I got out is I felt so alone. I felt so unlike anybody else because I had all of these secrets. I had all of this pain, all of this trauma. And I just felt like if anybody really knew who I was, they wouldn't like me or they wouldn't love me. And so I just want to say to that person that feels is feeling that way now, like I get you, I, I feel you, I see you and please reach out because I would be honored to be the next Papa. Thanks Rusty. That, yeah. that almost well, made me cry. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean but like could you if you went over there and you went to the fudge shop what would happen with um I have done that so I I had been out probably over a decade when I finally um you know really felt like you know what I'm ready to stand up and I'm ready to show my face back in that town and I did and I took one of my um good friends who was not from the cult but I took her with me and we went up and stopped in several of the cult businesses and we were just ignored. We were, act, they acted like they didn't know me. They acted like, you know, they'd never, you know, seen me before, which is fine. You know, I wasn't there to cause trouble. I was just there to, you know, to, to just, for me, it was like a, like, I can do this. I will not be intimidated by anybody or anything. I'm standing in who I am. And for me, it was, it was both scary and also invigorating saying, no, like I'm not manipulated anymore. I'm not brainwashed anymore and I can do this. So, yeah. Right. And so, I mean, were there any, any workers there that you saw yourself in? Every one of them, every one and, of them. And did they all know you? Oh yeah. Yeah. So they all recognize me because we all grew up together. So they've, they, of course, you know, um, they, I had cut my hair, you know, we weren't allowed to cut our hair. We didn't wear makeup. We were only allowed to wear skirts and, you know, very modest attire for the women. So I had, you know, when I went back, I went back in pants and a shirt and my hair was short and, you know, so, but I'm, I'm certain that they all still recognized me. Um, and, you know, at, but I saw myself so many years prior to, to every one of those people, right? None of them get paid. I never got paid for working for any of the businesses he, and neither do they. Like I saw 
my dead end life in every one of them, right? I would never have done any of the cool things that I've gotten to do in this, you know, in this last 19 years, whether that's travel or, you know, um, you know, a family or any of the things that I've gotten to do uh, in just experiences in general, those people don't, aren't going to get any of those things, you know? Have you, that is a kind of a crazy one. Uh, have you thought of getting some elaborate disguise and going there like doing like a missed out mrs doubtfire or something like that uh, and showing up there and start you know befriending someone there so for me it's so much more to uh powerful to stand in my power right and in my authenticity and um, you know, I've, I've reached out to my own sister several times over the last 19 years, because I just want her to know if there's ever that switch that gets clicked and she's like, wants help or wants to get out. I want her to have my information. So I've showed up at her work. I've showed up at, you know, just over the years to remind her I'm here. If you're ever ready and you ever need me, I'm here. And so I, you know, would do that for anybody that is still there that wants out or from any other group for that matter, right? Like if somebody hears the sound of my voice and it resonates with them and they need help, like I would do whatever I could to be that love and light and to be that support um, because that's something that I really wished I had had when I got out. And so what are the chances though that what the people inside the cults are listening to isn't monitored or um, uh, filtered through the the leader or people, you know, with the leader. Is it is that a, a hard thing to do, or can you, you know, you know, sneak off and listen to rock and roll music or or whatever, maybe the thing, or you know, be able to do that or would it be kind of hard to be able to get past that and have that um you know self so mainstream media was not allowed in the cult whatsoever right like they want to keep you ignorant they want to keep you um from knowing what's really going on on the outside so when when i lived in the compound i had no clue what was going on outside out in the in the main world right like you're just totally cut off and I wasn't allowed any kind of mainstream media, whether that was music or TV or internet. I, I had like, I was very naive with all of that. Um, you know, for the families that live outside of the compound and live on their own, you know, they don't have cameras in their houses that go back to the cult, you know, leader. I, you know, so if they wanted to sneak out and do something like that, they certainly could. But I know my family in the years that we grew up, we never had a TV. We never had radios. We never, because it wasn't allowed, right? Um, right? You know, I've heard through the grapevine that some of those things are changing within the group that people are, you know, like because of the internet, that there's more access to a lot more things that we never had access to when I was there. But I, you know, I can't vouch for that because it, it wasn't that way when I was there. So is it the same leader that's been there the whole time that started it? And yes, is he up there in age now? Yes, he's like, in his eighties. Oh, geez. Okay. Um, so, so this group's been going on since the early seventies and my parents joined in 1975 and we got out, my parents got out in 2005. So 
um, you know, but it's been going on since the early 70s and it's still going on now. And so what happens when he dies? Um, well, our prayer is that it falls apart and that everybody just has an aha moment and, you know, reclaims their lives and hopefully comes back to their families that are on the outside. But wow. there's, you know, there's no one that has been raised up to take his place that I'm aware of or that we're aware of. Um, so we, we hope that, you know, if he passes that that just allows everybody to kind of breathe and to, to reset, but you know, that's something that all of us talk about and, and wonder because we don't know. So was there any sort of, you know, reintegration talk for if that did happen, how people that are in there and, um, if everything falls apart? How they everyone gets back into society or what they expect people to do if that happened? So, you know, I I think personally, I would be on the first airplane to go try to find my sister and to try to just be there for her to support her and to, you know, um, you know, hopefully be uh, what she needs as she would transition or hopefully want to transition. I don't know if she would or not, right? Like she's in her fifties and this is all she's ever known. So, um, you know, it would be a very individual kind of uh, response. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of us and a lot of families that have been out for many, many years. And, uh, you know, there is power in numbers, but at the same time, everybody's journey is individual. And so you can't make anybody ready to reintegrate or to want something different until they're ready. And I don't, I don't know what that would look like for the existing families and, and people within the group. So where is this compound? It's in Wisconsin. Okay. Um, and so is there stuff on the internet about them or is it? There is, there's a lot what, on the internet about them. What is the name or can you say that um, or the leader or you not want to? Not at this time, but okay. if anybody, if anybody Googles cult in um, Wisconsin, they'll be able to read uh, tons and tons of hours about things from, from my, um, my group and my name is listed. So if they Googled my name, they could probably find information too. But, okay. you know, yeah, it's because my sister's there. I still don't want to repeat the name. That's fair. Um, and then so. So, okay, so I guess last question. So were your, was your family from North Carolina or what'd you go to North Carolina? You, you left. You left a uh, land of, uh, of, you know, I, I don't know, uh, Hy-Vee and uh, <laughs> yep, you're stuff right. of that nature. Uh, yeah, so I lived in, um, I was born in Minnesota and oh. we commuted, we commuted to the cult every weekend that was, which is in Wisconsin, four and a half hours away. Uh, so that's how we got like, linked up with the cult my parents did. Um, but my dad's business got bought out when I was 12 and brought us to North Carolina. And so 
between 12 and 18, I went to public school. I, you know, we lived in North Carolina. We still went to the compound like three or four times a year. But then at 18, seven days after I graduated high school is when I was summoned back to the compound. And that's when I moved back to the compound between 18 and 25. So that's the acorn version of that, of that story. So um, my roots now for my family are in North Carolina and the, the majority of us are here. Um, so yeah, that's how we have the North Carolina roots. Okay, I guess I have one more question. Why do you think you're one of the chosen people from him? What do you think it was about you? Um, I think it was my stubbornness. And I think it was my, um, I, I was just a very vibrant and uh, he wanted to break me. He wanted to, I, I think that it was my spirit. It was my, you know, like it, it was my um, just, it was something that intimidated him and he didn't like that I was um, not scared and he didn't like that I, uh, I, you know, he wanted to kind of own me, I think, in, in a lot of ways. He wanted to break me. He wanted me to submit to what people were when he chose them, right? And right. he, um, he, I went through a lot of, of really, really difficult and horrible abuses because he tried to break me. And I look back on my spirit uh, of that time and I, I recognize that, that spirit and that strength and that optimism and that love, but I also don't recognize her at all, right? Like, it's almost like I was a zombie during that time. And I, I have, I, I removed myself from everything that happened to my physical body. I, it's like my spirit was removed from those actions for that period of time because it was so painful because it was so, um, it was so degrading and it was so humiliating and it was so painful. And then, you know, kind of afterwards, I've had to rejoin the two, the two peoples, you know, the two selves, um, you know, but I don't, I don't, um, I don't have regrets. I don't have, uh, I wish I could have, should have, because all of those things have created this amazing, strong, uh, you know, vivacious, zest for life person that I am today. You seem it. Excuse me. That's okay. Um, yeah. And so where are people going to find you um, on the internet or wherever you'd like them to find you? How, con how can they contact you? Yeah, so um, they can find me on any social oh. medias. Sorry, it's <coughs> I got a frog in my throat. Oh, no. No, I'm good. Um, so they can find me on any social media, Martha Glory Kartaui, K-A-R-T-A-O-U-I, or my business, my coaching business is Pick Wellness, LLC. That's P-I-C Wellness, um, LLC.com. So you can go to my website to get a hold of me in, in any way as well, but with my phone number and everything else. Excellent. Well, it was great meeting you and nice having you and getting to know your story and you and getting everyone to, to hear it. And I appreciate that. Thank you for the platform, Rusty. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you for being so Absolutely. candid. Like it's, this isn't an easy topic. And so I appreciate you just being right. candid and, and open and um, allowing me to share.
I'm not good at the other way. So <laughs> is what I can do. Um, will you hang tight for like three, four minutes? I, I want to. Okay. I'll, I'll get you soon here. Thank you. Thank you. All right. That was Martha Glory. Uh, get a hold of her. That's episode 400, you guys. It's a 400 episode party there. So thanks for listening on the Quantum Global Broadcasting Network, QGBN. Check out the other great shows such as When the Gloves Come Off, the Thinking Man's Pro Wrestling Podcast. This is it with Lizzie and Saved by the Ben. And this is brought to you by Fred Ben Savage's Buck, Stone Reads Productions, Hardcore Comedy, Hypnosis is Great, and SockEmUp.org. And thank you, everybody. Like, share, share, share it away, share it away, and subscribe. Click those ding bells and everything. And uh, thank you for 400, you guys. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. It's Rusty Diamond, motherfucker. Ernest! 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 <coughs> yes, Pee-wee. You brought the snacks, right?